Good morning, New Life. Good to see all of you guys. I want to welcome all of you, and then all of you who may be joining us via live stream as well. I want to welcome you. Uh, my name is Chris, one of the pastors here at New Life. And uh, just a quick note before we jump into our, our text this morning. Uh, if you've been around a little while, you know what Journey 101 is. If you're new here, you may not know what Journey 101 is, but the first Sunday of every month, we hold a luncheon that's free to you upstairs, uh, and we spend just about an hour kind of telling you where we feel like God is taking us together as a faith family here at New Life. And uh, we had a couple of openings just kind of come open at the last minute. And so whether you're signed up or not, if you're new here or you're newer here, uh, I want to invite you right after this service to just go right up those, those stairs. We have a room there called the living room. We'll have lunch for you, and, uh, and we'll hang out for about 45 minutes to an hour just talk about where we feel like God is taking us together. And so uh, if you haven't been to a Journey 101 luncheon, today is a great day to, to come, so I hope that you will. All right, if you have a Bible, go ahead and grab that, open it up or turn it on, and head to 2 Samuel chapter 5. 2 Samuel chapter 5, that's where we're going to start we're going to end up in, in chapter 6 um, as we continue in our David series together this morning. Now, if you were here last week, you know uh, King Saul is now dead. So Saul is out of the picture, and David's time has come. Now, God has been raising David up. He's been preparing him for this moment for years, even decades uh, you remember all the way back to the start of this series, man, David started as a little boy in the sheep field, right? And God was with him there. And then he was in the battlefield with Goliath. And then he was a refugee on the run for his life as Saul hunted him. And David remained faithful to God in every season of life. David was truly a man after God's own heart. In fact, just to give you kind of a quick snapshot into David's heart, when he hears that King Saul is dead, remember, Saul, the guy who hunted him, the guy who tried to kill him over and over again, the guy who stole his wife and gave her to another man, the guy who made his life a living hell for years, David's response when he hears that his enemy is dead is mourning. He weeps over his enemy's death. Like, no, no celebration, no fist pumps, like, yeah, baby, Finally, that's what you get, you punk trying to kill me. None of that, right? Tears, sorrow, fasting for a life lost, even the life of his enemy. And now we come to the moment of coronation of King David. So I hope you're there now, 2 Samuel chapter 5. We're going to start in verse 1. Then... All the tribes of Israel came to David at Hebron and said, Behold, we are your bone and flesh. In times past, when Saul was king over us, it was you, David, who led out and brought in Israel. And the Lord said to you, You shall be shepherd of my people Israel, and you shall be prince over Israel. So all the elders of Israel came to the king at Hebron, and King David made a covenant with them at Hebron before the Lord, and they anointed David as king over Israel. David was 30 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned for 40 years. At Hebron, he reigned over Judah seven years and six months, and at Jerusalem, he reigned over all of Israel and Judah 33 years. And so after 
years of trusting, after years of obeying, after years of struggle and pain and clinging to the promises of God, David finally, at age 30, becomes king of the southern kingdom of Israel called Judah. And for seven years, the northern kingdom of Israel was actually ruled by one of Saul's sons. His name was Ishboseth. Now, the son, after seven years, is murdered. So now, all of the elders from the, all of the tribes of Israel, they come to David and they say, David, you're our guy now, man. You are the chosen one. You're our king now. We want you to lead us. God has appointed you for this task. Now, you got to keep in mind, these, these are the same elders who had actually supported Saul's son as king. So in a sense, these elders had been David's enemies, David easily could have exacted revenge at this point. He could have imprisoned or even executed these men as traitors. But David teaches us an important lesson about leadership here, and that's that God never gives us kind of positional authority for self-aggrandizement. Right? He, never, like he never raises us up so that we can leverage our position for self-promotion, our wealth, or power, or our own reputation. And you might be thinking, well, Chris, that, that's cool for David, but I'm not a king, man. How does this relate to me? Well, that's true. You may not be a, a king, but God gives positional authority in a lot of areas of life. Are you married? Do you have kids? Are you a parent? You have positional authority. Do you supervise anybody at work? Do you serve on a ministry board or a PTO board or an HOA board with your neighborhood? Are you a teacher or a doctor or in law enforcement? You see where I'm going with this. God gives us all positional authority to varying degrees, but he never gives it to us so that we can lift ourselves up at the expense of others. In fact, I would argue great leaders, godly leaders, leverage authority to help the weak, not to use the weak or crush the weak. We give ourselves away for others instead of lifting ourselves up as the world does. That's why Jesus taught that in his kingdom, anyone who wants to be first must become the very last and the servant of all. And David shows us, he models that for us here. He could have crushed those who opposed him Instead, not only does he embrace them, he actually makes a covenant with them. And church, isn't that a picture of the gospel? Isn't that exactly what Jesus did for us? That in while we were his enemies, while we opposed him, he embraced us, he loved us, he created a, a covenant of grace with us. That's exactly what Jesus did for us. David is pointing us, of course, to a greater king who is Jesus, and we've talked about that throughout this whole series. Verse 10, go down to verse 10. And David became greater and greater. Why? For the Lord, the God of hosts, was with him. Now, this is one of the defining marks of David's life. He was constantly in pursuit of God's presence. David wanted nothing more in life than to live in the presence of God. I think that's one of the primary reasons God says of David, he's a man after my own heart. I want you to listen to the words of David that he wrote in Psalm 42. This will be on the screens for you. Listen, listen to his heart here. David writes, As a deer pants for flowing streams, so pants my soul for you, O God. 
My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? Now, this is a verse that we like to kind of stick on coffee cups and T-shirts with like a little cute painting of a deer frolicking in a meadow by a picturesque river, and and that's all fine. But that is not the picture that David is painting for us here. David is saying, outside of God's presence, if I don't have God's presence, I'm like an animal that's completely spent, completely exhausted, on the verge of death, searching for life-giving water, tongue hanging out of the mouth, almost dead, that's how my soul thirsts for you, God. Without you, without your presence, I'm done, I'm dead, I'm finished, God, I'm done. See, David lived for God's presence and his glory in his life. And because David had that kind of faith, God poured out his favor on David in remarkable ways. And that's something that we can't miss here. And so this is kind of the first highlight that I want you to take home this morning. Here's number one. Our faith unlocks God's favor. Now notice what the text says. It says, and David became greater and greater for the Lord was with him. Now listen, when I say that our faith unlocks God's favor, I don't mean that in the same way that prosperity gospel preachers mean that, okay? You understand what I'm saying? I I don't mean that if you just have enough faith in God, he's gonna make you rich, he's gonna make you healthy, he's gonna make you happy, and you're never gonna have another problem again in your life. Like that is such a load of bunk, right? David's life is proof of that. Y'all almost got me in trouble. he he, He walked through incredibly painful seasons in his life. He walked through devastating events in his life, David did, again and again. So when I say that our faith unlocks God's favor, I don't mean the absence of trouble in our life. I mean that we get God's presence and we get his power in our lives, and that is far more valuable than temporary riches or the absence of trouble in our lives. Look at what the writer of Hebrews says about this. This will be on the screens for you as well. He says, and without faith, it is impossible. It is impossible to please him. He's talking about God there. It's impossible to please God, for whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards or he pours his favor on those who seek him. Faith unlocks God's favor or his reward in our life. Now, here's the amazing thing for those of us who live on this side of the resurrection of Jesus. The way we get God's favor is by placing our faith in Jesus. Isn't that amazing? We don't have to grovel for it. We don't have to try to earn God's favor. Do you know why? Because Jesus has earned the Father's favor for us. We don't have to earn it. We don't have to work for it. If you're in Jesus this morning, if you're a true follower of Christ, you have his favor. For you, you're not working to get his favor. For you, you have to learn how to live from that place. You've got to learn how to rest in his favor because we have his presence and we have his power. We have his favor already if we're in Christ. That's called the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. That's why Jesus could say to his disciples, hey, listen, it's better for me to go away. It's better for me to leave you so that I can send my spirit who will indwell you and he will lead you and he will guide you and he will comfort you and convict you of your sin. So if you're a follower of Jesus this morning, I want you to understand, you have full access to God's presence, his power, and his favor. He indwells you. 
Now listen, if you're here and you're not a Christian, I'm glad that you're here. I think this is a great message for you to be here for because listen, I want you to understand, God offers you in Jesus full access to himself. He wants you to live in his favor. He desires it so much, in fact, that he came into this busted up world of ours and he lived the life that you should have lived and he died the death that you deserve to die so that you could become his son or his daughter. That's the gospel. That's good news, church. God wants you. He wants you. Jesus is the bridge to the Father. And it's only through faith in Jesus that we get his favor, we get his power, we get his presence. Verse 12, and David knew that the Lord had established him king over Israel and that he had exalted his kingdom, why? For the sake of his people, Israel. Now again, David knew this wasn't ultimately about him. God's favor in his life wasn't really about David, (laughs) God didn't bless David so that he could live in the biggest palace and live the most opulent lifestyle available to him. David was keenly aware that God's favor and his blessing in his life was so that he could be a blessing to other people and point other people to God. That's what I say to you, friend, the same is true in your life. As God blesses you and your life with different talents and gifts and resources, I want you to know, God doesn't just give you all of that for you. He gave you the talent that you have. He gave you the resources that you have specifically to advance his kingdom so that more and more people would find their hope in him. Now, David understood that clearly, and consequently, God used him mightily. So David, after all this time, after all the pain, All the trials, David, finally, he's king. God's long-awaited promise has come to pass as it always does. And soon after he becomes king, we don't have time to read it, but he goes out and he whips the Philistines, not once, but twice, right? God is just blessing his leadership in astounding ways as David walks with God. Now, what's David's response after becoming king? This is remarkable. One of the very first things David does as we get into chapter six, and I think this tells us where David's heart really is. He goes and he gets the Ark of the Covenant to bring it back to Jerusalem. Now, some of you know what that's about. Some of you have no idea what that's about. So so quick Bible history lesson here. In the book of Exodus, Moses receives a command from God to build this thing called the Ark of the Covenant. It was essentially kind of an ornate, beautiful box made of acacia wood. It was overlaid with gold, had two gold angels. The Ten Commandments were kept inside of there along with a couple of other things. And at the top of this Ark of the Covenant was called the Mercy Seat. And the high priest would come into the Holy of Holies once a year and they would sprinkle the blood of a sacrifice on the Mercy Seat to atone for the sin of the people. So the Ark of the Covenant in the Old Testament Ultimately, it represented God's presence with his people. This is how God dwelled with his people in the Old Testament. This is hugely important. Well, the Ark of the Covenant was actually lost in battle to the Philistines. We see that in 1 Samuel chapter 4. This was massive because in a real sense, the people of God lost the presence of God. And this is such a big deal uh, that actually Israel's prophet at the time, he was this old guy, this old prophet named Eli, 
he, he hears that the ark has been taken by the Philistine army, that it's been captured, and Eli is so devastated by the news, the scripture tells us he falls off his chair, breaks his neck, and dies on the spot. I mean, this, this was everything to them, and now it's gone. And the reason that the ark was captured in the first place was because God's people began to use him as a good luck charm. See, they thought, man, maybe if we bring the Ark of the Covenant into battle with the Philistines, maybe that'll give us some kind of like magic battle juju against the Philistine army. See, ultimately, the people of God began to choose sin over God as they tried to use him instead of worship him. And so God removed his presence from his people. Now, for those of us who are believers or followers of Jesus, we can't lose his presence. His spirit indwells us, but we can grieve the spirit of God, can we not? We can quench the spirit in our lives. We can lose intimacy with our Father. That's what sin does. It separates us from a perfect and holy God. So even in this little detail of the story, I think there's a valuable lesson for us here not to treat God like some sort of good luck charm to be used in case of emergency. Not to leave him on the shelf of life until we need him to do something for us. That is not how God operates. And we, when we begin to treat God like he's a cosmic butler in the sky who exists to serve us, there are certain consequences that naturally flow from living life and interacting with God in that way. And so David's heart here is good. He longs for God's presence. He wants to restore God's presence to his people. He yearns for the people of God to worship God fully and experience him fully. So he goes to retrieve the Ark of the Covenant. I love David's heart here. So the scriptures tell us David gets 30,000 of his men, and they go to retrieve the cart. And when they get there, they put, they put it on a new cart. They take the covenant, the Ark of the Covenant, they put it on a new cart pulled by oxen, which is a big deal, big mistake. And I'm going to tell you why that's a big deal and a big, big mistake in just a minute. All right, so 2 Samuel chapter 6 now. We're in chapter 6, and we're going to start in verse 5. You guys following along? A lot of detail, I know, but I think we need to see that. Verse 5, 2 Samuel chapter 6. And David, in all the house of Israel... We're celebrating before the Lord with songs and lyres and harps and tambourines and castanets and cymbals. Y'all, this is a straight-up worship service. And let me just pause right here, kind of shameless plug. We're getting ready to have our second-ever worship night on March the 27th. All right, that's coming up in about three and a half weeks. It's going to be right here, 6 or 6.30 p.m., and Mike is going to do all this. He's going to play the harp, the tambourine, and the castanets. I don't even know what the castanets are, but Mike's going to be playing them, so you better come out. Verse 6. And when they came to the threshing floor of Nacon, Uzzah put out his hand to the ark of God and took hold of it. Uh-oh, for the oxen stumbled. Verse 7. And the anger of the Lord was kindled against Uzzah, and God struck him down there because of his error, and he died there beside the ark of God. So what the heck just happened, right? They have the ark on a cart. It starts to rock over, and our boy Uzzah grabs it before it falls over, and he falls over dead as soon as he touches the ark. What on earth? Now, remember, just a minute ago, I said, take note that they put the ark on a, on a cart being pulled by oxes. 
That is a huge deal. Why? Because God had given them detailed instructions in Numbers chapter 4 about how the ark was to be transported. It was supposed to be carried on poles by Levites, by the priest. And it was so holy, God's presence is so holy, nobody was to touch the ark lest they die. Very specific instructions from God to his people. And here's the deal. David and his people knew better. They knew better. They knew God's law. David especially knew the word of God like the back of his hand. So where did they get this awful idea to put the ark on a cart? They got that from the Philistines. They got it from the Philistines. That's how the Philistines transported the ark when they captured it. So, so listen, here, here's the lethal mistake that David and his man made. Listen to this. They chose convenience over obedience. They chose convenience over obedience. It was easier. It was a lot easier to get a big heavy ark from one city to another on a cart instead of carrying it on poles. So I'm sure it was really easy in their mind just to, to, just to justify it. Like, man, it's going to take us so long to carry this ourselves. Man, we got this cool new cart here. We saw the Philistines doing it. It seemed to work for them. This is easier. This is more convenient. I know what God said, but I bet if God was here, he'd be cool with this. He'd probably be cool with it. So let's, let's just do this. It's going to be easier to do it. And church, listen to me. We do the same thing in our lives so often. We live in a culture that worships convenience and ease. We are the culture of microwave dinners and fast food and 30-minute sitcoms and minute clinics so we don't even have to wait for a doctor. I even, no lie, I even heard of one church in Chicago a couple years ago that did drive-through communion. No joke. Not kidding. You pull up to the window, they throw you some wine and some bread. God be with you, you know? Don't get a DUI, right? We worship ease. And if we're not careful, things can go sideways for us really, really quickly, just like they did for David and Uzzah here. Because for us, it's the same thing, right? We know, most of us know what God says in his word about whatever it is, right? Sexual ethics or marriage, or how to invest our finances in the kingdom of God, or one of a thousand other things, and we go, yeah, 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 I know that that's what God says, but I think I found another way. I think I found a better way. I think I found an easier way. And I bet if God was here right now in 2019, he would have thought of this too. And so we think, yeah, 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 God, I, I hear you, but you probably didn't really mean that, did you? You didn't mean that, God. Man, it's not that big of a deal for me to just maybe cheat a little bit on a test at school. Who cares if I'm looking at stuff online that I shouldn't be looking at? It's not hurting anybody anyway. Nobody's ever going to know about it. I know what God says about the importance uh, for believers to gather on Sunday to, to worship him. But you know what? I, I connect with God on the golf course. I connect with God on the hiking trail. So I know what God said about it, but I don't really care. I think I found a better way. I know I shouldn't flirt with that coworker, but it's just harmless fun. It's not gonna go anywhere. And so we start to take shortcuts in our lives 
and we choose convenience over obedience. And as we saw with Saul's life last week, and now again this week, there are always consequences to our disobedience. Always. Always. Now, we may not see them immediately. We may not experience them immediately. But there are always, 100% of the time, consequences to our disobedience to our Creator. Now, here's the, here's the scary thing for, for me as I kind of process through this. Here's the scary thing. Nobody, not King Saul, not Uzzah who died because he touched uh, the ark against God's word and command, nobody wakes up one day and says, you know what, I think I'll just ignore God and just destroy my life. <laughs> like, that sounds like a great, fun plan for today. Let me just ignore God and just wreck my life. That's not how it happens for any of us. It's a slow drift, isn't it? It has been in my life. It's a slow drift, a trickle effect. And we begin to compromise on small things. We begin to ignore God's voice in his word and little things. And then we wake up one day in the ashes of our disobedience. Listen to me, church. It is a slow drift. Be on alert. Examine your life. Walk with God. Trust him. His ways are always good. Even when they seem hard, even when they are hard, even when the world around us says, Psh, that is so dumb. That is so old-fashioned. That is so old-timey. It's 2019, bro. Get enlightened. Get woke. His ways are always good. So here's, here's the second truth that I want to highlight for you this morning. Church, let me just plead with you as a brother, as a friend, please, if you're a believer, if you're following Jesus, even if you're not, choose obedience over convenience. Choose obedience over convenience. He is a loving father. His ways are good. You know, God has, God has structured his world to work, to function in a certain way. You guys know this is his world, not ours, right? We're just, we're just getting, we get to live in it, right? He has crafted things, he has designed things to function in a certain way in his world, and when we live according to the design, there's a certain blessing and there's favor that comes from that. And when we choose to live outside of that design, there's also a certain curse that comes with that as well. Friend, choose obedience over convenience. Your life will be better for it, I promise you. So, all this goes down. Uzzah's now dead, David's buddy. And the scripture tells us David is, understandably, he's angry at God. He's mad because he's sitting there looking at his buddy Uzzah dead on the ground. So he gets mad and David sends the ark away. He sticks it in the house of a guy named Obed-Edom. So if you're looking for a baby name, you might want to consider that one. Let's, let's bring that one back. Obed-Edom. I like that. Okay. Verse 11, and the ark of the Lord remained in the house of Obed-Edom the Gittite for three months, and the Lord blessed Obed-Edom and all his household. Quick note here, there is blessing in God's presence. So the ark is in this guy's house because David says, man, I don't, I'm mad at God. I don't want that ark. Get it out of here. David's throwing himself a little pity party. And Obed's like, man, fine, I'll take God's presence. Bring it to my house, man. I'll be glad to take God's presence. 
And God blesses him, and not only does he bless him, he blesses his whole life, his family, everybody. There is blessing in God's presence. Verse 12, and it was told King David, the Lord has blessed the household of Obed-Edom and all that belongs to him because of the ark of God. So David went and brought up the ark of God from the house of Obed-Edom to the city of David with rejoicing. That's Jerusalem, verse 13. And when those who bore the ark of the Lord had gone six steps, he sacrificed an ox and a fattened animal. David now has learned from his mistake. In fact, 1 Chronicles 15 tells us that as David transports the ark this time, he does it according to the word of God. There are priests who carry it on poles this time. And so David teaches us that we aren't defined by falling or failing in our lives. Our lives really are defined by our response to falling or failing into sin. Right? Do, we, do we wallow in it? Do we just accept it? Like, man, this is just the way I am. This is just the way I was born. My dad was like this. My mom was like this. People are just, God's just gonna have to accept me like this, man. Just embrace the sin. Do we minimize it? Do we justify it? Or like David, do we repent? Do we turn from our sin? Do we learn from our error? Do we run from sin and run to God as David does? It's fun for our family. Uh, Friday is what we call uh, our family day. And so Friday is my day off, off work. And so our, our tradition as a family is we get up on, on Friday morning and we cook a big breakfast together. So that's, that's a real fun time. We just kind of, kind of big doings, man. We cook a whole bunch of stuff and we eat as a family. And then after we, uh, after we eat breakfast, we go and we sit down in the living room and we have family devotions, okay? And so we, we open the Word and we study the Word of God and we pray for one another. Sometimes we'll even sing some songs and uh, as my kids have gotten older, they understand more now. So now what I'm doing is I basically, I just go through the sermon with them. So they get a preview on Friday of what you guys get on Sunday. And uh, when, when we got to this part of the story that we're about to read, they couldn't stop laughing. It got to kind of a funny part. So maybe you guys will find it uh, a little bit humorous as well. So verse 14. And David danced before the Lord with all his might. And David was wearing a linen ephod. So David and all the house of Israel brought up the ark of the Lord with shouting and with the sound of the horn. So God's presence is now back. David is apparently so pumped up about that that he strips down to his linen ephod. Don't you hate that when that happens? You get stripped down to your linen ephod? In modern language, we would say David stripped down to his boxer briefs, okay? <laughs> David is in his boxer briefs, and the scriptures say he danced with all his might. David is getting after it. He goes full Pentecostal right here, right? The whole country is celebrating. They're worshiping God. This is an incredible scene. I want to be at this worship service. This is a party, right? This is, maybe Mike can make this happen next week, right? right? My, minus, minus stripping down to the, to the no, we're not, we're not going to go there. They're not going to go there. We've got, we got too many Baptists in here to do that. All right. Now watch this. Watch this. Verse 16. As the ark of the Lord came into the city of David, Michael, the daughter of Saul, looked out the window and saw King David leaping. Listen to David. This is, I love David. Leaping and dancing before the Lord. And she despised him in her heart. Verse 17. And they brought in the ark of the Lord. They set it in its place inside the tent that David had pitched for it. And David offered burnt offerings and peace offerings before the Lord. 
And when David had finished offering the burnt offerings and the peace offerings, he blessed the people in the name of the Lord of hosts and distributed among all the people the whole multitude of Israel, both men and women, a cake of bread, a portion of meat, and a cake of raisins to each one, right? This is, this is a big party. There's lots of food, all, all kinds of great things going on. And then all the people departed each to his house. Verse 20, and David returned to bless his household, but Michael, the daughter of Saul, came out to meet David and said, how the king of Israel honored himself today, uncovering himself today before the eyes of his servants, female servants, as one of the vulgar fellows shamelessly uncovers himself. This is Saul's daughter, remember? The apple doesn't fall far from the tree, does it? She sees David worshiping God, and David doesn't care what anybody thinks, because he's not worshiping them. He's worshiping God. And Michael is watching him worship with a critical spirit. And it says that she despised David in her heart. Because she's not focused on worshiping God. She's not celebrating that she, they're now in God's presence. She's focused on critiquing other people's worship. And there's something for us even now, in this text, right here, in this portion, believer, listen, if you find yourself critiquing how other people worship, like, man, that guy over there raising his hands up like he's somebody, he probably wants somebody's attention, man. I know what he was doing last Monday night. Or look at that lady over there just folding her arms, man. She's miserable. She probably doesn't even know the Lord. Or, man, man, the, the drums are a little too loud today. Mike, man, he was a little bit off pitch on that last song here. Listen, if you find yourself drifting to a critical place, to a place of critiquing in worship, let me just say, be careful, friend. Be careful. Because you are drifting into dangerous waters. And listen, you are missing the whole point of worship. See, the whole point of worship, and I need you to hear this. Listen to this. The whole point of worship is that worship is not self-focused, it's God-focused. See, and David could not care less what anybody thinks. He is worshiping God with every fiber of his being. And I love David's response to, here to uh, Michael's kind of cutting words. Verse 21. And David said to Michael, it was before the Lord who chose me above your father... And above all his house, oh, no, he just didn't. <laughs> oh, yes, he did. He went there. It was God who chose me above your father to appoint me as prince over Israel, the people of the Lord, and I will celebrate before the Lord. I will make myself yet more contemptible than this, and I will be abased in your eyes. But by the female servants of whom you have spoken, by them I shall be held in honor. And Michael, the daughter of Saul, had no child to the day of her death. Listen, David didn't give a rip what anybody else thought because he wasn't performing for anyone. He was worshiping God. This reminds me of the, the story I heard one time. Some of you probably have heard this story where this, uh, this lady comes up to the pastor after the service, and she comes up, and he's greeting people, and she comes up to him, and she goes, Pastor, you know what? I, I really didn't like the worship today. I didn't really like the song selection. I, just, I didn't like the worship today. And the pastor responded, well, ma'am, that's good because we weren't singing to you anyway. <laughs> oh, snap. 
Now, see, I'm, I'm sweeter than that. I wouldn't say it. I would just think it and judge you in my mind. He actually said it. Now, here's, here's, the, here's the last truth, and, and then we're done, I promise. Here's truth number three. God's presence demands authentic worship. God's presence demands authentic worship. Church, see, when we encounter the living God of this universe, who, when we were hopelessly lost, when we were dead in our sins, drowning in our own self-righteousness, that same God sent Jesus to rescue us and to give us life, not just now, but in eternity, forever. When we realize that and we internalize that, there is no other response than unrestrained, liberated, full-hearted worship. Nothing else will do. And when I say worship, I don't just mean singing in church or in the shower or in your car, although it certainly includes that. But we worship God in every area of our lives and how we love our spouses, right? And how we raise our kids and how we love our neighbors and how we treat our coworkers and how we manage our finances. All of that is worship. And so we should live a life of worship in response to who God is and what he's done for us in Jesus. Now, one of the things, we've talked about this before, one of the things that I love about New Life is that at New Life, you can find someone from just about any background you can imagine. And I realize a bunch of y'all came out of like Presbyterian backgrounds or like me, Baptist backgrounds or Catholic backgrounds. And I realize for a lot of you, if you come from those traditions, you're really cutting it loose just by opening your mouth and singing on Sunday, right? Like that's going crazy for you. And then we have people who are from a more charismatic background here. And I love my charismatic friends here. And you feel more free to be expressive and raise your hands and maybe even dance a little bit. Listen, it's not about how you worship outwardly. It's about where your heart is. Now, that being said, a lot of us, I'm convinced, and I, I place myself in this same boat, a lot of us just don't know how to fully worship God like David did. Just not caring, not giving a rip about what anybody thinks about you. Now, if you say to me, Chris, well, look, man, th this is just how I look when I'm excited. <laughs> when I get excited, this, this is how I look. If that's you, cool. So you're telling me that if I come up to you in the parking lot after the service is over and I say, you know what? Somebody just gave me a brand new Maserati or whatever your favorite car is. And I just feel impressed by the Lord to pass that blessing on to you. If your response would honestly be, well, praise the Lord, Pastor. <laughs> praise God from whom all blessings flow. Thank you, Lord Jesus. If that's legit how you celebrate and you worship, great. But if you would get loud and raise your hands and high-five me and hug me, then why would you worship God with any less enthusiasm than you would celebrate a stupid new car? Amen. In Jesus, in Jesus, God has done infinitely more than any stupid car. I'm telling you, we ought to live our lives with a contagious sense of excitement in every area of our lives, 
including when we worship God privately and corporately together on Sunday mornings. Amen? Let's pray, and then we'll practice this, all right? Father, teach us to live with great faith. Teach us to trust you in good times, in hard times, God. And as we learn to walk in faith and live in faith, God, we, we boldly ask for your favor in this place. Father, would you pour out your spirit on your people in this place? Father, teach us to, to choose obedience over convenience in this world, in your kingdom. Teach us what it even looks like to follow your word over our feelings. Father, give us, would you give us, please give us, like David, the ability to, to love you and to worship you fully and freely in every area of our lives. God, would you call us out of complacency? Would you show us real life, real freedom in you? And we ask all of that in the strong name of Jesus. Amen. Church, let's stand and sing.